Yankees Files podcast. We are back. I'm Will Harris. You're Alec Whipple. And the rest of you, like us, are probably pretty amped for the start of baseball season. Honestly, I'm just happy we're getting baseball at all again. We've had a normal spring training to this point. I guess we're still a week out from the it might get interrupted by a global pandemic point of no return. But um, it's been cool to have like a normal offseason to get ready for opening day and get pumped about it in a normal way on a normal timeline um it's honestly kind of unsettling like I haven't felt this way in a very long time uh since 2019 I guess uh and I'm just I'm so pumped about it it's what a great time of year hope springs eternal uh the Dodgers really need a shortstop so hope springs eternal that IKF is off this team shortly the vibes are phenomenal as far as I'm concerned Whipple how are things for you do you remember what we were doing on March 7th, 2022? What you and I were doing on March 7th, 2022? We were recording episode number 30 of Yankees Files, the title of which was It's March, We're Mad. <laughs> Otherwise known as probably the most dour, depressing, angry. Although I shouldn't say that because I think two episodes later was the post-Gary trade episode. But the vibes were never as bad as they were on the I just remember that specific episode because it came almost right before the the lockout tides started turning. And I think yeah. it was the low point where I was the eternal optimist. And I think at that point I conceded that, you know, things looked pretty bleak for the season to start on time. Yeah, and I think I said during that episode that we wouldn't have baseball till like June or something, right? You were very adamant and I was so adamant that there wouldn't be a delay of season up until that point. I just remember I like, I was like, this is me throwing in the, the towel. But a year later, you're right. The vibes have never been better. The first normal spring training in a few years. And I know we're still a week away from the point of pandemic, but I think we knew in 2020 that something could happen. COVID mm. was a possibility. And right now, I think all everyone's caring about is, you know, who's going to be playing shortstop for the Yankees and, you know, get ready for the WBC, watching uh, the starting pitchers work up to, to full strength, watching Anthony Volpe tear it up. I mean, these are just the most baseball, non-economic, non-health <laughs> state of the country concerns. And it's pretty fun. I, I forgot what this felt like. And it's been a really fun time watching the Yankees in camp and just enjoying a normal baseball season. I'm very glad that it is March and we are we are something other than mad. There are things that we're mad about. Right. Uh but <laughs> thankfully mad it does not describe our countenance in totality. Um so Whipple, I think there's a lot to cover on this episode. Uh spring training I don't normally feel this way. Spring training has been riveting. Uh it's been so exciting to see Anthony Volpe and Jason Dominguez. It's been so exciting to see, you know, guys who don't really have a prayer at the roster. I don't think we're seeing Jason Dominguez until the end of this year at the earliest, really probably the middle of 2024. Uh, Spencer Jones has been in big league camp the whole time. He's a monster. I think it's it's so cool to imagine in a few years the Yankees having an outfield of Spencer Jones, Aaron Judge, and Jason Dominguez, just two giants and a Martian. I think that's really cool. Um, we've seen some, uh, you know, contributions from all around the minor league roster, whether it's Trey Sweeney or Carlos Narvaez or, uh, 
who was it? Taylor Aguilar or Andres Chaparro. Um, there's there's a lot that the Yankees have in this system to be excited about. And uh, I think that's been on full display. Uh, DJ LeMayhew's back. He's been, you know, hitting balls hard in the air all over the field. That's a great sign. He let Miguel and Duhar make a, a nice defensive play, throwing him out at second base last night. Uh, charitable king, DJ LeMayhew. Um, and he was just, safe. So. And he was safe. <laughs> he just didn't uh, want to know, run the bases. This no said. replay in spring training. Uh, it's, uh, you know, Aaron Judge went yard for the first time in spring training last night. It's just, it. what a great time of year. Uh, it's normally hard for me to get excited about spring training, but to have the first normal spring training in a while, to have all these kids, uh, to have, you know, the roster intrigue that we have, um, it just, it, it couldn't be better. Yeah, I... I feel the same way. I mean, I always love spring training, but I think there's so much on the table for the Yankees this year, both in terms of open um, open positions, potential fifth starter battle, potential bullpen flux, and then also just the prospects. I think there have been a few years in which the you know there's a bumper crop of prospects. I mean, the Yankees have had a good farm system for the last few years, but you know, having a good farm system and coming to spring training and watching those guys tear it up are two different things. And that really hasn't happened. Like, I, I think the hype has always surrounded these players and they just haven't performed. I mean, Glaber definitely had a good spring training, but you have to go back a while, um, if at all, in the recent past to find a, a season where I think the, the non-roster players, the prospects have just uniformly been playing so well. I think that's what stood out to me the most. You've seen some of these games, you know, the offensive total domination I'm thinking of the um, the game against the Pirates last night, the game against the Rays this weekend, but then also the late comebacks. And, you know, I'm thinking oh, of yeah. the Braves game, which that's driven by the non-roster guys. It's driven yep. by Dominguez. It's driven by Chaparro, driven by Jesus Bastidas, Willie Calhoun. So it's it's an interesting mix. And, you know, spring training results don't mean anything, obviously, but... I think the way that players are performing, you know, definitely means something for specific guys. I don't really care how Aaron Judge does, but how Jason Dominguez, Anthony Volpe do are, you know, very interesting to watch and can tell us a lot when we don't get a chance to see them on a day-to-day basis when they're in the minor leagues. And you're right. I mean, Dominguez isn't going to make the team. Volpe might not even make the team, but how can you be anything but so overly positive optimistic just excited about the future when you see every single night Dominguez coming in or Trey Sweeney playing or Chaparro hitting a home run and Volpe obviously the headliner but pretty much everybody you know no one's really disappointed so far yeah it's it's been awesome and look I don't want to read into spring training results I think you know what you and I have found is the baseball reference opponent quality uh metric for spring training stats is telling like you know it would tell you if you just multiply it by OPS it would tell you that like Aaron Hicks, Jesus Bastidas, Tyler Hardman, uh, Everson Pereira, Andres Chaparro, Elijah Dunham, Oswaldo Cabrera, Carlos Narvaez, Willie Calhoun, Jason Dominguez are all having better spring trainings than Anthony Volpe. Um, so it is sometimes tough because of the level of competition you might be facing or the, you know, share of split squad games you might be playing in or the 
pitch mix that the pitchers you're facing may be trying out. It's tough to read into the performances, but man, is it fun to see the prospects that we've been hearing about for so long, especially Dominguez and Volpe, uh, and see them play as well as they as well as they've played. Um, so look, I if I were reading into spring training win loss results, I'd be really worried that the Red Sox are going to win the World Series, but uh, I'm not. And I'm not even reading into slash lines that much, but it's just exciting to see the Yankees playing baseball again, doing it well, giving the kids a shot. I mean, it's just, it's just a good time of year. Like, I really have missed this. I remember how angry I was and how pessimistic I was about uh, about where things stood for baseball during the lockout at this time last year. And this is just so much better. <laughs> Yeah, it's the natural rhythm of a baseball season. I mean, last year when the lockout lifted, I hopped on a plane and went down to spring training. Wildly fun. Had a great time. But it wasn't the sleepy spring training that we all know and love. You know, sleepy in the sense that, like, there's a natural rhythm. Things build up. No, There's no pressure on any one game. We know that, you know, there's a few weeks of play. You see the, the kids come in and, and, you know, they'll cycle out eventually. And last year, it was just like, all right, it's, you know, day one, Severino's pitching, Tyon and Nestor are going tomorrow. Volpe got, like, two at-bats and was sent down. Yep. Um, you know, that the, Volpe would have been the equivalent of a Spencer Jones this year who's gotten to play in quite a few games, and instead he barely got a shot last year. So it was just a different feel. And then, like you said, and you know the way that it all ended just made you feel kind of uneasy about it. And this year it's just... It, it, it's almost like shocking how enjoyable it's been. I think the thing that's impressed me about most is that with, you know, it's not just the statistics, which can be misleading and probably shouldn't put too much stock into them, but, you know, Volpe and Peraza and Dominguez and all the prospects, they just look like they belong out there. And they you know, do Dominguez being 20 years old. I mean, he's playing with the big league regulars. He's, he's getting big hits. You know, he's making good defensive plays. Like it's, it, but he, it's not even about the numbers. It's just about the way he comports himself on the field and yep. just the presence he has. And, I, you know, he's got things to work on for sure in the minors. But I think the big takeaway can be that when these prospects come up, they will they will belong. Like, they will fit in. They won't seem overwhelmed. They might not hit right off the bat. They might not play the best baseball they've ever played. But these guys, they – they look like they've been there before and they haven't been there before. And that's pretty impressive. It um, sure is. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. We, we could just sit here and talk about how much we love watching baseball, but it's just, <laughs> I mean, we could, we do that all the time. It's just so fun to you know turn on the TV. It's February 26th and, you know, turn on the one o'clock game against the Phillies and catch a few innings of Glaber Torres and Jason Dominguez and, you know, Severino pitching a few innings, just like checking in and, you know, there's no concern of the wins or loss record. It's so different than the the exercise of baseball over the six and a half month season that we're used to. So it's just a nice change of pace. And I think this spring training, another thing that we'll go on to talk about is obviously the rules updates and the changes. But I just want to talk about them quickly in relation to the Yankees because... Wait, 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 wait. I'm not talking wait. about the no, rules. No, no, no. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. But... I have a fact that I don't want to forget, and I okay. think it's worth discussing because we've been talking about the young guys that the Yankees are giving chances and how well they're performing. Do you know who had the hardest hit ball in last night's Yankees-Pirates game? Was it 
Dominguez. It was the 2018 second place <laughs> AL Rookie of the Year finisher, Miguel Andujar. He ripped a double 109.3 miles an hour. Jason Dominguez and Everson Pereira both hit balls uh, 106 plus, though, which was pretty cool. But uh, just had to give Miggy Doubles his uh, his credit there. Uh, can't help but feel like this team could have used him in left field. You can decide for yourself if that's a joke or not. I mean, nothing but eternal love for Miguel and Duhar, who if you had Absolutely. said a few years ago he was on the Pirates and Coles on the Yankees, you would have thought that they were traded for each other. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, Duhar and Frazier for Cole. <laughs> but that's the kind of stuff that spring training so awesome to see. Just like you never know who's going to show up to – any game i mean it's like nothing else you watch like you turn on a game or you check in before you don't know who's going to be on the lineup for your team you don't know who's coming over from the other team both in terms of starters in terms of non-roster invites you know guys who are running out of the bullpen it's just a fun time with a lot of surprises and absolutely no stakes and i feel like we all deserve that for a little bit the other thing i did want to say though it kind of relates to poise it kind of we're going to talk about the rules um, changes obviously such a hot button issue that you wrote about but in terms of how the Yankees have done I've been very impressed because if you were just watching Yankees games I feel like you would not grasp the adjustment period that's been going on around the league the struggles that people have had um, and just the the consternation over them I think the Yankees have done incredibly with handling the changes like I barely noticed they they rarely rack up pitch clock violations both offensively and on the mound um, they, they just haven't run afoul of these rules that we've read so many other teams have been running afoul of. And that's just very impressive to me with in spring training when you have minor leaguers who are probably more set up to handle these just based on the fact that they've been playing with some of them for a few years and professional or big leaguers who have been obviously playing a certain way for many years and need to adjust. I've been extremely, extremely impressed by the fact that the Yankees have handled all the changes that have come very quickly pretty well and the fact that they're not going to be sending many guys to the world baseball classic um where the old rules will be in place means that they're going to be even more set up for um playing a full season with these rules and you never know i mean that can win them a few games potentially sure yeah i think i think that's a great point and i will say i wasn't all that worried about the yankees batters running afoul of the pitch clock rule um simply because they have so many guys who just stay in the box like, Judge stays in the box. Stanton stays in the box. Glaber mostly stays in the box. Um, so, like, those guys I wasn't super worried about, but it's not like they have anyone on basically the entire pitching staff who is accustomed to these rules. And the guys who we expect to see on the staff, you know, in the big leagues this year have, as you said, really not been racking up violations. Uh, I think Cole said he started practicing with it in, like, January. Um, so I, it's it's pretty obvious to me that there's been an organizational focus on, uh, you know, ingraining that tempo and making sure that guys understand the pace with which they need to play. Um, as you said, we'll get into our assessments of the different rules later on in the show, but... Uh, I think you're exactly right. It's the Yankees are violating these rules at a much lower rate than I thought they might. And that could absolutely be worth something to them over the course of the season. Whipple, before we get into the rules and I anticipate us having a rather protracted discussion about them. um, I think it's probably fair 
probably prudent for us to talk about the three or four key roster spots that um that appear to be up for grabs here in spring training. So I'm thinking about left field, shortstop, uh, the fifth starter, and we can put third base in the discussion, though I don't know that for the Yankees, third base is really in the discussion. So who is your pick to land uh, the left field job, the shortstop job, and the fifth starter job? So for left field, I think... You know, one of the things I love about this pod is there's a record of everything we've said that can be held against us. And I'm, you know, obviously not immune to mistakes. And I have said pretty vehemently that I vehemently vehemently. (laughs) (laughs) I knew I was pronouncing that wrong. And I was like, you know, we're just going to go for it. Um, No, you're just a literate king. You 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 learn that word by reading it. And there's nothing to be ashamed of. Yeah, law school, future lawyers of the world. <laughs> um, anyway, Aaron Hicks is still a Yankee, and I was pretty adamant that he would be traded. I said that multiple times this offseason. Yep. It was really hard for me to believe that he would be on this team, and I was just I was willing to stake a lot on that. And Aaron Hicks is still playing baseball for the New York Yankees, and based on the way he's been used, and more specifically based on the way Oswaldo Cabrera hasn't been used, I think it has to be him. I mean, Cabrera... If Cabrera was going to be the left fielder, I would expect him to be seeing a lot more left field time. And that just hasn't happened. So, you know, by process of elimination, I don't think Willie Calhoun and Rafael Ortega are seriously going to be starting for the Yankees. I think it has to be Hicks. Um, In terms of the other spots, I think Peraza is the favorite for the shortstop job. Obviously, he's injured right now. That could change things if it's more serious than anticipated. They did say they expect him back on Thursday, but... You know, with the Yankees, we have to, I think, wait for that to happen to believe it. Right. At this point, I'm going to assume it's as minor as they're saying. And I just don't believe that Anthony Volpe is going to be the shortstop starter. I think that the way the Yankees use their depth is to keep all of it and manipulate it so that they have all options available at all times. And if I guess you could send down Peraza and keep Volpe in the majors, it would just go against the way they treat AAA, the way they have handled both players and the way that they've handled their depth. Like at this point, having Peraza and IKF on the major league team, hopefully IKF gets traded. But at this point, having him on a bench roll and keeping Volpe in the minors allows them the flexibility to use all of their options. And Peraza hasn't lost the job. So I don't think he ever could lose the job, but like he hasn't done it so far. Um, And then fifth starter, I think it's going to be Herman. I, I wish it was Clark Schmidt, but honestly, like watching Herman last night, I was more impressed by him than I'd been in a while. And I think it has all, pretty much all to do with his velocity. I mean, if he's throwing 94 with like life on that fastball, it's a, a few miles an hour that makes a big difference. I know he was dealing with shoulder stuff last year. He just did not look like his pitches had that much life. He did fine, but I think we. The Herman of last year, I would have rather had Clark Schmidt starting. But yep. with Tommy Canley's potential injury, I'm totally fine if they want to use Schmidt in a bullpen role. And you know he's going to get starts anyway. Maybe keep him stretched out in AAA. I think the Herman we're seeing is a perfectly fine fifth starter. And honestly, like, <laughs> I mean, we talked about Frankie Montas. But if the, if the result is that you get, like, a average to above average to make a Herman I think that's a better result than like wondering if Frankie Montes' shoulder is going to hold up or just waiting for him to find it in the next start. So 
yeah, I, I'm fine with Herman if that like he's serviceable and he could be a little bit better than that. And I think again, the Yankees never do this stuff without having a preordained favorite. And usually yeah. it ends up being that preordained favorite. I mean, like the Jordan Montgomery of the world who basically won the job solely in spring training or like Gangervis Solarte, Lucas Lucky. Legend. Those are, <laughs> those are few and far between. So that's my that's my take. I, I imagine yours is pretty similar, right? Yeah. Um I th- I think you're right. There's always an incumbent and it's shocking when that incumbent uh doesn't end up with the job. Um I think as you said, I'll echo it, like if you had told me back in December, November, that on March 7th, IKF, Donaldson, and Hicks are all still going to be on the Yankees, I would have, like, I don't know what I would have done. I would have thought you were insane. Um, I would have thought you were from, like, an alternate future where everything is bizarre. Um, But no, you know, here they all are. Um, I agree that the way the Yankees are using guys in spring training suggests that they really do believe in Oswaldo Cabrera as a super utility guy and don't want to lock him into a position, which all else equal, I would say is the most valuable way for Oswaldo Cabrera to be used. But given the need that the Yankees have in left field and Oswaldo Cabrera's apparent capacity to fill it is a little bit puzzling but I think you're right given the way they're using him and the way they're using Hicks it indicates that Hicks will be the starting left fielder uh given Peraza or granted Peraza's health you know as long as uh his injury is as minor as they say it is I expect him to start at shortstop and to play shortstop for you know most of the year um and especially with Canely's injury, I think it makes it easy for the Yankees to manage the Albert Abreu, Clark Schmidt situation and put Domingo Herman in the fifth spot. I think that Clark Schmidt has a lot of value if they want to just really try to turn him into new Mike King. But the Yankees seem really set on him being a starter as well. So I don't know how they'll manage that. Um, this is where it would be valuable to have like a viable fourth or fifth starter in the minors because then that guy could be the Clark Schmidt who we're not sure if he's going to be a starter or not. You keep him stretched out in AAA and if Domingo Herman is bad or someone gets hurt, you call him up and you could really commit to Clark Schmidt being the Mike King and Chad Green guy. That would be my ideal situation. Um... Most of the time that we've watched Domingo Herman pitch, it has felt like he's just holding on and kind of skating by with unimpressive stuff. I agree that this spring training, he's shown us uh, a a capacity to throw hard and, you know, shown us better stuff than we've seen in the past. And if that's legit, I think the Yankees have something there. Um, whether you want him throwing the you know fourth or fifth most innings on the team I'm still not sure I think uh you know when he's gotten long runs guys have figured him out but um yeah I I don't feel I don't feel terrible about him winning the fifth starter job in the way that I expected to and frankly like given that I feel like Schmidt is a better piece out of the bullpen anyway, I think I could get to the result that I want 
without like the exact process that I was hoping it would take to get there. And that is ultimately fine with me. We're talking about the back of the rotation. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I know this is like giving like catnip to the cats, but this just shows how bad the Frankie Montas trade was. Like you traded away mitigated disaster. <laughs> you traded away at least two guys who really could fill that role you're talking about. And like yeah. with the Efros trade, I mean, we're not relitigating the trade deadline on this pod, but at least you have Efros for, you know, a few more years. A long time. I don't I mean, do you feel like the Efros trade was a mistake? Because no. I don't. Yeah. No. I, I think like I the the I think the reason, and I'm sure we agree on this, the reason that it makes sense to be mad about the Montas trade and not about the rest of the deadline, whether it's Efros getting hurt, Benintendi getting hurt, um, you know, like whatever it might be, is Frankie Montas had a documented history of not being good when he wasn't pitching in Oakland and of injury. Um, and then he was bad out of Oakland and got hurt. Like... I don't know. Did they know Scott Efros's elbow was going to blow up? Right. Like, of course not. And would it be nice to have Hayden Wesneski right now? Probably. But again, uh, it's a predictability versus lack thereof thing. So, yeah, I, I completely agree. Right. I mean, Montes, I have a hard time believing he was ever healthy. And giving away yeah. starting depth is pretty bad for a guy who isn't starting or won't be starting now, for a while. Now, it wouldn't suck to have Jordan Montgomery on this team, but... Uh, you know, given even just league average offense, Harrison Bader could be extremely valuable. So, yeah, it's taken me a while, but I think I've gotten over that one. Yeah, I mean, if the Yankees had had a center field hole this offseason, I think they would be really hard pressed to fill it. Or yeah. you'd be seeing like Hicks in center full time yeah. or Judge in center. It's yeah, it, I think the Montes trade was bad given the injury history. I, I'm I'm less likely to care about the performance outside of Oakland. I think that's a factor, but I just think guys can. You know, they might yeah. see something that other people don't. The the injury stuff is where I just draw the line. I say somebody screwed up and that somebody should have been fired, but we'll probably never know. Um, the point is that, you know, the Yankees are counting on the fact that they can build pitchers, you know, out of nothing. And there might be a few of those guys coming up, but we don't know who they are. And it's yeah. unlikely that they'd be able to, you know, step into that role as quickly as J.P. Sears or Ken Waldachuk. And... I mean, yeah, it's the fifth starter job. You know, you know, these guys are all going to be pitching innings, getting starts, even for the fielding positions. You know, everybody's yeah. going to get at bats. Um, you, Oswaldo Cabrera will get his at bats. Like, it's not a huge concern. No IKF doubt. will get his at bats in Colorado. Um, but <laughs> oh, in Colorado, there we go. Hey, <laughs> somebody's got to take him, right? I mean, before we talk about the rules, like, are you, somebody has to take him. There are too many middle infield injuries. The Yankees absolutely do not need him. I mean, like, I'm begging you. I'm begging you, Colorado, L.A. Like, so, no, I, I totally agree. I absolutely agree. And I think, look, I think Mookie Betts would be a perfectly fair return for IKF. Um, <laughs> Two middle infielders being traded. Exactly. Just swap, swap middle infielders. Mookie doesn't play shortstop. So, you know, IKF doesn't either. Uh, so <laughs> the fact that they're playing him, they're playing Mookie Betts at second base, I— interesting year for the Dodgers I okay so back home I uh went to you know that like old barber shop that was next to uh like across from Luke's Donuts Lumani 
No, no. not Lumani. Oh. On uh, sure. Okay, sure. whatever. <laughs> uh, it doesn't. It's not important. Uh, one time, uh, Chris Moss's mom took us there so he could get a haircut on our way back from school, and I was like, "Oh, I didn't realize we were stopping to get Chris a haircut." Anyway, <laughs> now I've alienated our entire audience. My old barber there was a huge Red Sox fan, and he would always tell me that. Mookie was the post Pedroia solution at second base because it's so much easier to replace an outfielder than a second baseman. And uh, that didn't happen. And then they traded Mookie away and then the Dodgers extended him and then the Dodgers made him their second baseman. So uh, he was kind of eventually right. Um, but no, it's it's crazy what's happening with the Dodgers. Their rotation is not nearly as fearsome as it has tended to be in the past. Their position player depth has kind of been decimated, uh, especially with the Gavin Lux injury. Like, I I you could hardly run out a, a more impotent middle infield than Miguel Rojas and Isaiah Kiner Falefa, but. If the Dodgers do it, they'll figure out how to get like 40 combined home runs out of those guys or something because that's what the Dodgers do. Um, But no, I do think someone has to take IKF. I think the Yankees have, what, three guys, four guys, four guys, I think, uh, in Cabrera, Peraza, Glaber, and Volpe, who I would rather see at shortstop. Um it really is astonishing that they haven't found a fit, but I have to imagine that as spring training goes on and teams get more desperate, uh, he'll be shipped off to somewhere. Yeah, I mean, this stuff always happens at the end of spring training. I think once you get to the end of camp and you realize that help isn't coming, you know, those last-minute trades. Um, and, you know, if we have to watch Aaron Hicks and we have to watch Josh Donaldson, please dear god take isaiah kiner falefa send him across the country i can't do all three again like i can i can learn to start to appreciate aaron hicks's contributions and i might find a nice thing to say about donaldson but ikf the 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 value of his production versus the amount of time we spent talking about him was so disproportionate i don't want to do that again for another season i refuse (laughs) so we will see but yeah all right, Whipple, it's time for us to address the elephant in the room. Uh, if people go to yankeesfiles.com, they can see my article about the shift ban. And um, I wrote this article after a conversation with a friend about the shift ban. And my position is that the shift ban is consistent with Rob Manfred's philosophy of running baseball for the entire time that he's been commissioner, which is to look at a problem, not look inward, and scapegoat some unrelated thing. So Rob Manfred looked at the problem of baseball having a crisis of popularity, did not think that maybe it's because he didn't punish a team that was revealed to have been running an egregious sign-stealing scandal that won them no fewer than two pennants in a World Series, did not think that it was because he messed with the baseball in a poor attempt to produce the kind of batted ball distribution for which he had an aesthetic preference and then lie about manipulating the baseball. He did not think... It was because he completely changed the rules of baseball once they got to the 10th inning because if there's anything baseball fans hate watching, it's more baseball. He did not think that it was because he... uh, 
or what he did do, actually, was put strict rules around fielder positioning so that ground balls to the left side and up the middle are hits more often than they previously were. Because obviously, the reason that 32.5 million fewer people watched the 2022 World Series than the 1978 World Series is because now you can shift. Uh... It's insane. People can go and read the whole article. It's up on yankeesfiles.com right now. But um, it's insane to limit the defensive toolkit of teams in the way that they're doing it just because you have an aesthetic preference for where people should be on the field and what kind of batted balls should be versus should not be hits. It shows a complete misunderstanding of the data both on the effect the shift has at the major league level and the effect the shift bans had at the minor league level. It is akin to telling a basketball team they can't play zone defense or a football team they can't put five defensive backs on the field. You are making a trade-off whenever you decide on a defensive alignment, whether it's playing zone defense in basketball and potentially leaving a three-point shooter open because you want to double the ball handler or, uh, you know, sacrificing a bit of pass rush to defend receivers by putting five DBs on the field in football. Uh, teams felt willing to take the risk of opening one side of the field to cover another. They were accepting that trade-off. They should be allowed to do so, and hitters should do something about it if they want to do something about it. Now, it's very hard to do something about it, and teams knew that, but the shift produced certain outcomes, and it took away certain outcomes. And to restrict it just because when you were 13, a ground ball up the middle was a hit, and when you were 13, a ground ball between first and second was a hit, and now it's not anymore, is ridiculous. And I think that making changes to the sport in support of just random, arbitrary, aesthetic goals is stupid. And the idea that the shift is the reason people aren't watching baseball is heinous. And it is, once again, a masterclass by Rob Manfred in how to have no idea what you're doing. Do you want me to respond? You're more than welcome to respond. I know you have a, a specific question. Okay, so I guess, yeah. My, I mean, maybe we should just talk about my specific question because um, mm-hmm. I feel like – so basically I, I can I can lead into this. So I essentially my take on it, and I think the interesting thing about this debate as reflected by your article is that there's really no consensus opinion on this. And so my opinion is I agree with the specific statistical outcomes, obviously, like those are it's not your opinion those are the stats it doesn't really do anything (laughs) and yeah so just to put some to put some color behind that uh we saw that when the shift ban was used in the minor leagues it did not create a significant change in the batting average on balls in play and what i did was i looked at pulled ground balls Uh, by left-handed batters in 2016 versus 2022 and over that period lefties went from being shifted about a quarter of the time to 55 percent of the time and pulled ground balls by left-handed batters only lost two points of WRC plus over that period so there's we know the shift is effective at making it so you don't often get a hit on a pulled ground ball as a left-handed hitter. But there's a question about the real, like, runs per game outcome that the shift creates. And Mm -hmm. it appears that beyond a certain point, the shift really isn't that impactful. Or maybe that just period, the shift isn't really that impactful. 
Yeah, I mean, I think specifically it, as you said, like a specific type of batted ball can become a hit, and that's not really going to bring much excitement to the game if, if ground balls in a specific area are hits. I think probably the more impactful argument or potential statistic I've seen, which isn't even that impactful, is that the strikeouts might be reduced, I think, by an average of one one strikeout per team per week or something. Like, it's just the way that hitters yeah. will be approaching it. The, you know, the mentality, the way pitchers will be approaching it, like it will all boil down to some very inconsequential changes. So it's obviously, like 1% of previously shifted plate appearances or something. Yeah. It's, it's very minor. And I think you would see the same decrease or maybe like a 1.5 per team per week decrease in home runs in previously shifted plate appearances. Right. So it's all stuff that everyone's going to point out when it happens in the first few weeks and then never worry about again, which is because that's how the stuff works. So my question was, why do you care? Like why? Because the way you frame it, what I specifically don't agree with is that you frame this as Rob Manfred's like crusade to bring baseball back to as it was when he was a little kid watching and, and having his dreams of becoming a, a league destroying monster one day. <laughs> <laughs> but the way I view it is, well, one, it's not the only rule implemented. I think it's one of a few rules, three or four, um, I guess the disengagements and the, um, or bigger bases. Okay. So four specific rules implemented in concert. Okay. So you're talking about bigger bases, shift ban, pitch clock, disengagement as the four rules yeah and i think some additional enforcement of existing rules to a higher degree so a a concert a package of rules all implemented together and voted on by a competition committee granted i know that the players in the committee all unanimously voted against this but you at least have to (laughs) which is relevant (laughs) there were only you at least have to admit there was a process here and it wasn't just rob manfred unilaterally imposing i of course it's relevant, but there was more of a process than it seems, you know, from the way it was portrayed as, you know, MLB implementing these rules. So your central question for me is... My my central question is not, why is Rob Manfred not as bad as you think he is? My central question is, given the relatively minimal impact and the greater impact, I think, in other specific areas of these rule changes no you said you weren't going to do this okay you said you weren't going to compare it to the other rule changes okay okay your central question for me is why do you care about this with the relatively little impact so the reason i care about the shift ban is because its goal is explicitly aesthetic the people who voted Yes, on the shift ban, a group led by Commissioner Rob Manfred. Rob Manfred did not have a vote in this, so I'm just. And I'm and we we totally don't know Rob Manfred's position on the shift ban, and don't think he influenced anyone who was voting. Just gotta have the facts Um, out there. The the reason that I care about the shift ban is because it has a specifically aesthetic goal. The shift ban is not trying to. Uh, it it is not trying to do anything except change the way the game of baseball looks. What they want is when you look at a baseball field, they want the second baseman to be on the right side of second base on the dirt, and they want the shortstop to be on the left side of second base on the dirt. They want that to be the recognizable, exclusive defensive alignment. 
And they can lie to us, as I believe they have, and say, oh, well, it's going to create these outcomes. It's going to lead to more action. It's going to lead to higher batting average. But that's not true. And we know it's not true. And they know it's not true. What we also know is true, as I reference in my article, is that if they really wanted to make a rule that would be effective at changing the distribution of batted ball outcomes, they would restrict where outfielders are allowed to be. But they didn't do that, did they? And why didn't they do that? Because You can't tell a 10-foot difference or even a 20-foot difference in where outfielders are able to stand, but center fielders moving back 11 feet from 2015 to 2022 on average has had a way larger effect on weighted on base average than the shift has, but that doesn't matter. That's not bothering anyone because it's not nearly as noticeable when you look at a baseball field. It's dumb to take an arrow out of a team's quiver of defensive strategies just because it bothers you that part of the field looks empty because you're bad at answering hard questions about why the batted ball distribution in your league is what it is because you need to scapegoat something for the rise of three true outcomes when really you created that by manipulating the ball and then lying about it. The reason the shift okay, right, bothers me, me no, no, is no, 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 the you reason can- the shift ban bothers me is because it is done to scapegoat something for a whole host of other issues, some of which MLB created and some of which could be solved by other rules about defense that they don't want to make because it's not about producing actual results about what happens on the field of play. It's about certain people not liking that a thing looks the way it looks. And that's incredibly stupid. Okay. My, again, pushing back, MLB did not create the three true outcomes. The juice ball certainly was part of it, but strikeouts and home runs have been rising for years before the juice ball. No, the ball is harder than ever. The ball started to get bouncier in 2014. And strikeout rates were rising before that. Yes, strikeout rates were rising before that, and pitchers were showing greater velocity before that. But there is a very legitimate argument, as detailed in Baseball Prospectus, that it is the ball is more to blame, the increasing, uh, steadily increasing bounciness of the ball is more to blame than the shift for the increase in the, uh, the frequency of three true outcomes plate appearances because changing the behavior of the ball changed the run expectancy of certain approaches. Like, it is better to go up swinging for the fences if you are more likely to hit a home run. And swinging for the fences makes you swing and miss more. Like, manipulating the ball and then lying to us about whether or not you're manipulating the ball, which they did do, was at least equally responsible for the increase in three true outcomes as the shift was. But here they are telling us that now guys aren't going to walk and strike out because they're going to be able to get base hits through the left side. It's ridiculous. Right. Uh I think the worst thing that MLB has done more so than anything related to the Astros is the ball stuff, because that is far and away, you know, throwing into into the crisis of confidence of the game, not being sure, you know, what ball is being used, how it affects what. But there's also it is one of a few factors. I mean, that, you know, pitchers throwing harder and the fact that you need to sell out for power and having that be a better opportunity to score runs 
I think is just as big of a part. The rise of understanding, again, it's like three-point shooting in the NBA. The rise of understanding that hitting a home run is just a specifically better outcome than hitting a single or double is, you know, that's part of it too. I mean, selling out for power isn't just because people saw the ball and started to get ideas. So, Oh, yeah, no, we, right. we, we absolutely understand better what the optimal offensive approach is. But it's also the case that if you make the ball bouncier and make home runs more likely, then the trade-off between strikeout and home run changes. Because you're going to hit home runs more often. Right. No, I mean, I agree with that as a factor. And, and I then, think. And then what baseball did, what Major League Baseball did, is they went, we can't believe that guys are striking out and walking and hitting home runs more than they're dinking the ball through the infield. It must be the shift to blame. These big left handed monsters are, you know, uh, hitting the ball over the fence and striking out when they don't instead of poking singles in front of the right fielder because the second baseman is standing there. You think Kyle Schwarber is just going to dink the ball in front of the right fielder because now there's a shift ban? Are you joking? It's insane. They want the game to look a certain way. They don't want the game to be played a certain way because, as we know, this isn't going to change the way the game is played. They want the game to look a certain way. They want defensive players to be positioned in certain spots just because that's a, 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 an arbitrary aesthetic preference they have, and they are lying to us about why they want it to be that way. And it's ridiculous, and I'm tired of Major League Baseball treating their fans like they're stupid or like we can't understand the data or like we don't know that they lie to us about almost everything or like we believe the game has any integrity or like we believe the league has any integrity. So, so listen, my big counterargument is that this look. is not <laughs> – Look, this is not – I, I agree. I agree specifically with what you're saying. I don't agree with the motives. I think a league, maybe that's the motive, but I think a league has discretion to do this stuff. And in my opinion, the outcome, obviously the outcome isn't going to be that different, but I think acting like this is some overstep by a sports league is just not looking at what's happened in the past. I mean, look at the hand check rule in the NBA. Isn't that a pretty good parallel to this? Basically allowing for guards to have more you know le less defensive pressure on them and essentially killing the defensive-minded big man game and turning it to a smaller more offensive-minded game I mean how is that not a direct comparison to this and I did get I ever did I ever say like you know what's a great rule that I think was uh instituted through a really good process and really necessary for the game is the hand check rule in the NBA. Do you remember so, me saying that? You were just so, talking about how we have a record of everything that's ever been said. Is that one of the things I said? So is your position then just you don't like sports leagues and unilaterally implementing rule changes? Like what about spitballs in Major League Baseball? No. There what about are... the mound change? Okay, so... We can we I'm what about in the eighteen hundreds when they used to play with like a hacky sack with no light. And the, Hold the, batter, the batter was allowed to say where they wanted the pitch to be. What about that? Um I'm I'm more than happy to speak to uh the ways that this is different. So I am against a sports league instituting a rule simply because it fits their aesthetic desire. Um, I, th I think it's silly. I am vehemently against a, a uh, and I pronounced that correctly. I heard your laugh. Um, 
I'm vehemently against a sports league implementing a rule specifically because it fits their aesthetic desire and then lying about why they're implementing the rule. But the reason that this is different from lowering the mount or the reason that this is different from the spitball is because the spitball is like corking your bat. You are manipulating the specific tools used to play the game to create an outcome that you want to create to give yourself an advantage in the only thing that matters, the batter-pitcher battle. Um, And I think that regulating that so that every pitcher is pitching with the same ball for the same reason that, you know, regulation of foreign substances is something I'm fine with, um, makes all the sense in the world. It It is about the fairness that, the understanding that everyone truly is playing the same sport. Uh, you know, ditto corking your bat. Uh, the mound lowering, I'm glad you mentioned, because we actually have no idea what the effect of lowering the mound was because uh, everyone goes, oh, well, the next year there was so much more offense. Yeah, because they also made the strike zone smaller. Also, I'm the one who says MLB has never had any integrity. So... Like, yeah, MLB has been making rules about, uh, to, you know, that they claim will produce specific outcomes in competition for a long time. Um, I don't know what I would have felt about lowering the mound or making the strike zone smaller at the time. Uh, I find it hard to believe that, uh, you know, I don't think there's ever been a time in baseball history where the pitchers that year were not the best pitchers there have ever been. Like, guys are consistently throwing harder and getting better at pitch design and all of that. Um, I don't know what my threshold would be for pitcher performance to say, you know what, we need to do something about this. But that's the other thing. It's not like run scoring was super low in 2022. In fact, the slash line in 2022 looked an awful lot like the slash line in, what was it, 1978? Um, I looked into this for the uh, for our Twitter account before I posted it on the blog. The 2022 slash line, league-wide, 243, 312, 395. The 1972 slash line, league-wide, 244, 311, 354. So all these boomers who are making this rule change, telling us that uh, we, we have a league that you know, there's nobody hits for average anymore. They have for the same average in 2022 as they did 50 years ago. Like, what? It, it's the shift's fault? The shift cost them one point of batting average in 50 years? Like, what the hell is this? Okay, so I'm actually glad you said the thing about not being able to isolate changes between the, the mound and the, the strike zone because I think we're dealing with the same situation here, and I know you didn't want to talk about the other rules, but... The fact is, wait, wait, no, clock- we can talk about, okay. we can talk about the other rules, so, like, but I've told you the reason I feel so, like you think it's illegitimate no, no, for me listen, to care me, about the shift. I'm ban. not saying it's and illegitimate. The reason that I care about the shift ban is because I care about us being lied to. I care about MLB's incompetence. I care about arbitrarily limiting what defenses are allowed to do. I care about all of those things. So it makes all the sense in the world that I would care about the shift ban. Okay, but the fact is they're all going – all the changes are going to be implemented together, and That's the effect true. on offense will be you know, viewed simultaneously. And 
Yes, I think Rob Man- right now Rob Manfred has not spoken specifically on the shift band, but obviously he did in the past. And I think, you know, the way he spoke about it then is that when he was looking into it, it was something, you know, more similar to what you were saying. But I just have a hard time ascribing that intent to the league for, spe- you know, I, I think the over... The way I view it is that the rules should all be viewed together. I know you want to isolate the shift ban, but I think given its minimal effect, you can so, be mad at it. But I think I'm going to tell the you reasons why that it, no, the reasons no. that Rob Manfred specifically said these rules are being implemented are improving pace of play, increasing action, reducing injuries. So obviously it's more aesthetic, but I think it's not specifically the shift ban that he's focusing on. So I'm going to tell you why it doesn't make sense to view the shift ban alongside uh, all of the other rules. Maybe some, but certainly not all. So, uh, you know, the major other rule change that people are noticing, and we were talking about it earlier, was the the pitch clock. Um, I have my own reservations about the pitch clock. I think it is going to lead to more arm injuries because I don't think guys are going to stop throwing at max effort. I think it is going to lead to a labor issue uh, because it's going to make relievers specifically less effective and then they're going to get paid less in arbitration and then the union is going to have a problem because, you know, there was this rule that was voted in and then teams are colluding to pay relievers less and, you know, whatever. Anyway, um, the goal of the pitch clock is to reduce the time between pitches and it explicitly accomplishes that. Uh, so the pitch clock does not have an aesthetic goal. It has a functional goal and it will accomplish that goal. It, it, it is guaranteed to. Um, so the disengagement rule, uh, I do have a problem with in the same way that I have a problem with the pitch clock. Uh, the disengagement rule is another, or in the same way that I have a problem with the shift ban, not the pitch clock. Uh, the disengagement rule says... Uh, you know what the problem with baseball is? Is that pitchers are throwing over to first base. And everyone knows the reason that games are so long and uh, people stop watching them is because pitchers are throwing over to first base. Just like the mound visit rule. Like, it's 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 stupid. But uh, like the shift ban, the disengagement rule limits what a defense is able to do to manage the runners who are on base. To it, limits what the defense is able to do in response to an offense. So I have the same problem with that that I have with the shift ban, although I think it is slightly more legitimate because taken to its logical extreme, you can say, okay, uh, well, what if a pitcher throws over a thousand times in a row and then the game is really long and the goal of the disengagement rule is to limit time of game. So in that situation, it's accomplishing its goal. Like, I'm amenable to that argument. I think it's bad to limit what defenses can do strategically, but I can at least see how taken to an extreme, it is accomplishing the goal of improving pace of play. Um, and then the bigger bases, I think, are really a wash. Like, I, it's not <laughs> obvious to me that... Them, so. <laughs> It, it's not obvious to me that anything is really going to change. The threshold of certainty that you have to have that you're going to successfully steal a base is so high that I don't know if a couple inches will really make that much of a difference. Um, I think it's weird because baseball is so invested in um, 
like the sanctity of its records, I think it's weird that like you would not the, the game has changed so much that it's not truly in jeopardy, but like if we were to get back to a point or a player were to come along who is just like for whatever reason they should always attempt to steal. Um it would be weird if you're Ricky Henderson or Lou Brock that there's this guy who's getting to steal bases at like 89 and a half feet instead of 90 feet. Um, so I think that's just weird by baseball. I think it's kind of separate from the other things. So the pitch clock, I don't think is similar to the shift ban in any way. Mm -hmm. The disengagement rule, I do think is similar to the shift ban, but I think its goal is functional, not, or is aesthetic and functional, not purely aesthetic, because it has the aesthetic goal of wanting to increase stolen bases. And the the big base rule, like, I just, I don't, I don't think is big enough to make a difference. Um, so that's why it's a, a an independent thing. That's why I feel like the shift ban can be evaluated independently, and I can have a different opinion about it than I do about the rest of the rules. So I think, actually, you having said that helps me identify where specifically our difference is, because you are very concerned with the goals and the purpose, and I think my concern comes more from the outcome on the game, because I think the disengagement rule is a lot worse than the shift ban or the pitch clock. I think the pitch clock, I'm pretty much in the same camp as you, and the shift ban, obviously, my view of the negligible outcome means I care less about it. I think the disengagement rule has the potential for a greater outcome or a greater effect on the outcome um, just because – sorry, let me make sure I phrase this right. I think it has a greater effect on the potential outcome because it really manipulates the strategy and the potential violations are worse and there's a lot less that has to happen to incur them like for pitch clock like you're you know you're gonna throw a pit like at the end of the day you're gonna throw a pitch the batter's gonna step in the box like the goal is just to get to the normal rhythm of baseball but i think the restriction obviously as we talked about with the disengagement um you know with the shift restriction the potential penalty is it's pretty hard to trigger pretty minimal we haven't seen that triggered pretty easy to avoid but with the disengagement um, you know, having the amount of times you can throw over be limited essentially limits you. If you can only throw over three times and the third time incurring a balk, if you don't throw the runner out, you essentially can only throw over once before you're now on the clock. If you throw over one more time, you're now changing the, you know, either you're going to incur a balk the next time or the base runner knows that he can steal and, you know, it leads to an easier stolen base. Like that's, directly messing with game strategy in a way oh, that, I don't disagree with yeah that. so that's what I am concerned more about and I view the disengagements a lot more similarly to the extra inning rules which we obviously both hate and are very yeah. upset are permanent I think extra inning rule has a huge outcome on or effect on game outcome so yep. I guess my thing is if it has a misguided purpose but minimal outcome or a minimal effect on outcome I don't care as much um, I care more about the ones that might have decent intentions, but can really impact the game strategy. That's fine. Like, I don't, I don't disagree with your analysis. No, You're I've... right, probably, that the um, disengagement rule is going to have the biggest effect on how the game actually gets played. But I think the the point is, if we like, I I don't think we agree on the whole with MLB about what it is implicitly telling us is virtuous through these rule changes, right? Right. Like, uh, MLB is saying it wants faster games, it wants more action, whatever more action means, but, like, if we 
concede that more stolen base attempts means more action. Like, you can see how they get there. Um, fewer injuries I'm not following, but, like, whatever. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't really so, get that one either. Yeah, I don't get that one. Um, so, like, if we take MLB's goals as given, the process that I went through is I evaluated the rules with respect to their goals. And what I got to is they're lying to me about the shift ban. And I'm kind of tired of being lied to by MLB. I'm tired of being lied to about the Astros. I'm tired of being lied to about the ball. I'm tired of being lied to about how long seven inning double headers and runners on second base in the 10th inning are going to be around. I'm tired of being lied to about why people aren't watching the sport. I'm tired of different things being scapegoated instead of MLB looking at its own incompetence. And I can at least understand how, given the goals they had, they arrived at the larger bases, the disengagements, the pitch clock. What I fail to understand, and the only explanation I can arrive at is they want certain things to look certain ways, is the shift ban. And that's why it bothers me. I refuse to be lied to by these people anymore. I refuse to have things scapegoated anymore. I... Uh, if if I could do anything, I would make myself the commissioner of baseball and I would crank things back to 2017. I would ban everyone on the Astros or associated with them for life. I'm sorry, Marwin Gonzalez. We had a, a brief but beautiful time together. It wasn't beautiful. Thank goodness it was brief. Um, it was a whole year. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Literally a whole year. <laughs> Why it was it a whole year? <laughs> it didn't feel like he was around that long. <laughs> um, but yeah, I would I would turn the clock back to 2017. I would make myself the commissioner of baseball. I would ban everyone associated with the Astros from baseball. And I would prevent any of this nonsense from happening. So look, I understand what you're saying. If you're evaluating it based on what's going to have the biggest in-game impact, I think you've done the analysis correctly but that's not what I'm concerned with and that's why I'm so concerned with the shift ban so people can see that article on yankeesfiles.com uh a lot of people are quoted in it uh some of our twitter followers some of my friends um the cast of a pup named scooby-doo uh you'll you'll have to check out the article to understand that one um whipple you're going to the world baseball classic next week yeah, I'm going to be there for all, probably not all, most of the games of uh, Pool C. So going to see Team USA led by Kyle Higashioka square off against Colombia led by Gio Urshela and Mexico led by Luis Sessa. That's kind of all I need to see. I mean, I, there'll probably be some other guys there, but Andy Pettit's going to be a coach. Now, um, sadly, you will not be seeing the catcher we all want to see in the World Baseball Classic, Gary Sanchez, because he's not playing in the Arizona pool. Um, but the Yankees have had a number of injuries at catcher. Ben Rortvet uh, had an aneurysm, which is terrifying. Um, we hope he's okay. Austin Wells has a broken rib. Josh Bro has some sort of injury. Kyle Higashioka is going to the World Baseball Classic, uh, as is Gary Sanchez. Um, it kind of feels like the Yankees could use a guy who maybe at one point hit 
like 53 home runs and for a 923 OPS and drove in 132 runs over the course of 175 games, who was a top 20 defensive catcher, top 15 by some metrics last year. Um, like, it seems like that guy might be just valuable depth for this team. If he's out there, if he has two all-star appearances, if he's unsigned, if he has two 30-plus home run seasons, if he was one of the fastest players ever to 100 career home runs, like, it seems like that guy might be valuable for the Yankees to have, right? I mean, I, I think people online might disagree, but it kind of seems to me like could be a, a Gary Sanchez coming home sometime hashtag Gary come home uh I want this so badly um I I will say before we talk about it it just you know before everyone gets mad at us the way that that relationship ended it it is unlikely but however not nothing is impossible I don't care how unlikely it is um one thing that you tweeted that I really liked was uh Anthony Volpe will never be as good offensively in a single season as Gary Sanchez was from 2016 to 2017 People got so mad at that. It's objectively true. I mean, it is objectively true. <laughs> Let me put it in context. So Gary played that 175 game span. He hit 53 homers, drove in 132 runs, and had an OPS of 923. That's what you're saying. Volpe won't match. There are only two players to do that in a span of 175 games while playing shortstop: Fernando Tatis Jr. and A Rod, both of whom were on the juice at the time. So, like. Anthony Volpe, I tweeted later, could be a first ballot Hall of Famer and never be as good offensively as Gary was from 2016 to 2017. And people hated that, but it is so obviously true. No, and it's nothing against Volpe. Like, let's yeah. just remember how good Gary was for his first two years and three of his first four years, if you want to expand it. And really in 2021 before he got COVID. Like, Facts. that's a, okay, that's a take that I'm not seeing a lot of except for you, obviously, but let's like let's wind back the clock he was really good for the first four months he was Gary Sanchez was a three war per 600 plate appearance player and 30 home run per 600 plate appearance player with a 113 WRC plus from opening day to August 4th and then he got COVID and it destroyed him but Gary Sanchez was a seriously good player he was the second most valuable player on the Yankees through early August uh, in 2021. He was seriously good. He carried the team for like a month and a half. Mm -hmm. uh, it's unquestionable that he was a good player uh, until he got COVID, and nobody wants to talk about that. No, he had a great, a lot of great moments in that year, too. He I, did. I always remember the Blue Jays, the home run in Buffalo, or the yep. walk-off single against the Twins. Or the, the home run he hit in the Luke Voigt walk-off game say, against yeah. the Royals. Mm -hmm. A lot of yeah, great moments. Gary Sanchez, bring him back. If uh, um, he, if I if I you know can do one thing in Arizona, maybe I'll make sure Kyle Higashioka does not return to Tampa to ensure the catching spot opens up. Yeah, a little, <laughs> little I Tanya action. Uh, no, I don't wish that on him. But it wouldn't be bad if the circumstances arose <laughs> such that the Yankees felt the need to bring back Gary Sanchez. Anyway, Whipple, we've gone a little long. Your confidence out of ten in this team? Like we said at the top, it's been. An incredibly fun spring to watch, um, you know, knocking on wood, but like everyone's looked pretty good. And the guys who are, you know, the guys who need to show a recovery from injury, like DJ LeMay, who have done that. The guys who, you know, need to show a, a jump in performance to fill a new role, like uh, Oswaldo Cabrera, Domingo Herman, they've done that. 
Aaron Judge is still cranking home runs. Like, nothing has been bad so far. And, you know, having said that, it is spring training and, you know, you're not winning anything. Um, you know, the Red Sox can win the Grapefruit League, but they're still going to come in last. That's We all know that. So I'm, I think I was at a nine last time. I'm just going to stick at a nine. I feel like, you know, before the season starts, like, it's, you know, good vibes. Um, not jumping to any conclusions, but it's nothing. I think spring training can only lower expectations. I guess, yeah, yeah. you can lose the World Series in spring training. You absolutely can do that. So, oh yeah. So so far so good for you know the for um, the New York Yankees, the Yankee, the New York Yankees of New York. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, fun fact. Actually, that'll be my closing comment. Never mind. Okay, I'm also at a nine. Your closing thoughts? <laughs> so apparently, the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim are not named the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim anymore. It's just the Los Angeles Angels. You might have known that, but I did not, and I still call them the Anaheim Angels. So I'm like two names behind now. So, yeah, that's that, that was my comment. The Yankees should trade for Taylor Ward from the Anaheim Angels, Los Angeles Angels, oh, of Anaheim, Los Angeles Angels. Other closing comment. Brian Reynolds dropped the ball in center field, and everybody did not view it as poorly as they viewed Aaron Hicks dropping a ball in left field. And to that, I ask you, why? Well, I <laughs> bet his pitcher had not just walked G-Man Choi to extend the inning either. No. Uh, because G-Man Choi is on his team, so it would be and, literally impossible. And you know who hit that ball? <laughs> Rob Brantley. Rob Brantley. <laughs> Babe Ruth hit that ball. <laughs> <laughs> a catcher I hope the Yankees don't bring back. All right, Whipple, uh, it's been a pleasure as always. People can check out the Shift Band article at yankeesfiles.com. People can follow us at twi- on Twitter where we are at Yankees Files. And, of course, people can get this podcast wherever they get their podcasts. We hope that our listeners will rate, review, and subscribe. But only review and rate if you actually like it. Just subscribe if you don't like it. Uh, you don't have to listen to it. It'll just like show up in your feed. Maybe play it on silent. All that helps us out. Anyway, uh, excited to hear your findings from your time at the World Baseball Classic, and we'll do this again soon. Until next time, let's go Yankees.